Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, and I am back at it with another installment in the book of Revelation. So good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you as you are tuning in to this episode. And first of all, I want to just say thank you for listening. This is a a monumental uh, task that I took on last year. As we have taken on uh, to do, I think, well over 50 episodes by the time we finish this whole series on the topic of eschatology. So if you are a new listener, we are, uh, this is would be part three or episode three of the book of Revelation, and we are... Uh, I, we're, we're well into 29, 30 episodes, I believe now, uh, long in this series on eschatology. So there's a ton of content, um, that you can go back and listen to that goes all the way back to August. Now we drop episodes every Friday morning at 7 a.m. And so back in August, the first Friday in August, we, we dropped an intro to eschatology. And then we went and did a uh, episode on death, heaven, hell. And then we did the four views on eschatology. And then we looked at world views, uh, pagan views, uh, things like that, you know, other religions and their views in eschatology, which is a study of the end of times. And then we started to look at um, the uh, Old Testament and we walked through a number of scriptures from the Old Testament. And then we looked at the New Testament and we started talking about um, the Olivet Discourse. And then we looked at Pauline eschatology, spent a couple of weeks there. And then we did a quick episode on Peter and Jude. And now we are in the book of Revelation. So a lot of content for you to go back and listen to. And if you've never, um, if you've never listened to any of them, I would, I would recommend going back to, uh, the very, very, very beginning and, um, 
and starting through because it kind of carries a thread, a theme that starts all the way at the very beginning and carries all the way through. So you can you can go back into like individual points like you can start with the Old Testament and pick it up. Uh, or you can jump to the New Testament and pick it up, but they, you know, each little like segment has its own theme that's kind of set in itself below the bigger theme of of this whole series. So, you know, uh, the Olivet Discourse is kind of in its own little nutshell versus Pauline eschatology and Revelation. But interestingly enough, it's all interconnected, and so that's why it pays to have read uh, and know what is going on in all of this. So if you're a new listener, please go back and check those out. And as well, I thank you for tuning in to today's episode. We are going to dig into and finish up the letters to the book of, uh, to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So we are uh, going to wrap up chapter two and go through all of chapter three today. That is the agenda. So I can't promise you a short episode, but I think in comparison to what we've done, we might be able to look at these letters um, a little bit quicker and hopes that we won't get so nitpicky in in all of what's going on because we've really um, we've really looked at the last couple of letters in depth and we really framed out uh, episode one and two here in this little portion of this series and they were rather long uh north of an hour to 15 i think an hour 20 or hour and five an hour 20 or something so we've put a considerable amount of time um into these uh particular episodes and so it's uh it's a lot coming at you and i really want to um you know frame it to in that sense and and so some of these episodes maybe longer and some of them may be a little bit shorter. So, uh, uh, like I said, I don't know where we're going to end up with this. I, I don't have a, I, I kind of have a, a script, but not anything indefinite, indefinitely written. So whereas the first episode, I knew I had a ton of content to cover as we introduced the book of revelation and we went through uh, the first eight verses and that took us a while. And last week's episode took us a long time as well to just kind of get through what it was. And there was a lot of, um, imagery that we had to deal with, uh, as chapter one concluded, we had to deal with some of that. And, uh, we had to frame out how these letters to the churches are going to. And I'm going to give a quick reminder on that before we get into the content. And we will talk how Christ frames these letters to these churches. And so uh, I'll give a quick reminder so you are not lost on that. But uh, for those who are new to listening to this show, we are a listener supported as the little uh, voice at the beginning of this show kind of um, told you that you can support us through ACAST, which is our host server. Uh, they have the means to uh, that you can donate uh, that way. Otherwise, you can join us on Patreon and we are a growing family there. We are just under the first goal of 50 Patreons. And once we hit 50, I'm going to give away a premium Bible to a lucky Patreon who, uh, uh, supports this ministry. So there's so many things that you can do, um, that you get access to by merely a dollar a month. That's all we ask. We, we don't, I don't set tiers up because I can't sell anything other than, you know, my time to you. And while I find my time sometimes to be extremely valuable, 
um, I give it to you a dollar a month and that gives you basically four episodes a month that you will get pre uh, get your pre-release and you get video copies as I'm actually video recording this episode right now. And so you get a little prelude to the show, kind of some content that we're going to talk about. And, you know, sometimes we'll do some Q and A's in that session and then uh, just kind of give you a, a lowdown on what's happening with me. And then I upload that to uh, the Patreons and they get early access to the show and the video release of that. On top of, you'll get sermon notes and you'll get um, in any schoolwork. I actually just handed over my two uh, semester papers to them and I just continuously pour in content to that group. We do uh, bi bi-weekly Bible studies. There's a little tongue twister for you. And uh, so every other Sunday, uh, you can join us. And we are walking through the book of Mark this Sunday, actually, as this episode airs on the 9th. So the uh, 11th, you will have an opportunity to join us to study the book of Mark. We are about halfway through or almost all the way through chapter 11. And so just, you know, you get so much for, for really a dollar a month and, you know, some people give more and that's wonderful. And some people just give a dollar and that's wonderful. So again, listener supported, and I can't thank you guys enough for doing such because you guys are the engine behind this podcast. And the reason I do this show is to continue to give back mainly to the Patreons, but to the greater audience as well, because, you know, we are, I'm so thankful for everybody who listens to the show, um, We've been treading just under 4,000 listens a month as our average. And so that's wonderful. So as Undying Light continues to grow, my, my desire is for you as a listener to be edified by this content. So if you are, please share these episodes, um, whether you see them pop up on iTunes or Spotify, if you can share them across your platforms, your social media, Share them with your family, your friends, your church, and uh, let's get the word out to to the audiences that we haven't reached yet. And if you have the ability, please subscribe and leave us reviews on whatever platform allows you to do so. There's a number of platforms out there that you can. Uh, and as well, you can always DM me, Reformed underscore Lifestyle, or the Undying Light Ministries Instagram page and chat with me there. And uh, I'll answer any of the questions that you have in regards to the show and or Patreon. So... Guys, you know, one of the things that uh, if you if you are a Patreon, one of the things I can tell you uh, I, I struggle with is sleep. And I just have had all sorts of problems since coming into full time ministry in December just with with just general sleep. I'm just I don't know, I, I, not really having a framework where I have to um get up at 5 a.m. anymore and go to work and sit at my desk for nine hours. I'm like, well, I can get up at eight or nine or, you know, I'm not really bound by having to wake up and which I don't, you know, I don't sleep till noon. It's ridiculous. I was up at 8 a.m. this morning. So, you know, I'm not up at five and so I can go to bed later. And but that has really messed with my sleep pattern. So I thought it was kind of funny. I was telling the in my little prelude to this show to the Patreons, I was kind of making a mention, you know, I, I found this podcast of this gentleman who uh, does sleep uh, stories. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. And he he does this whole podcast and he does sleep stories. And in this, he, he 
I don't want to get into it. I, he does a great job. I guess he says he gets, you know, hundreds of thousands of listens and that's fantastic, you know, especially in the podcast realm. I mean, that's, I mean, he, his show was the number one that came up in it. Um, but I found it interesting. His like introductory is 20 plus minutes long every show. And he does five minutes of sponsor content at the beginning. And then he does 15 minutes of show introduction with sponsor drops and commercials. Like out of an hour show, it was like, f- maybe 25 minutes, 30 minutes of, of actual content. And the rest of it was, was, was sponsored. And so I was like, Hmm, you know, every time I'd wake up, I felt like, uh, this was, you know, it was, it was like, I was in a commercial and it was, it was just, it was just, I don't know. It was just weird. And so I was kind of like, eh, all right, well, but anyways, like why I say that is because I try to not frame every show to be like that. And in and, and every show I listened, um, every show that I listened to of his, it was exactly the same. It was the, the framing of 18 to 20 plus minutes of commercials. And it was, you know, heavy sponsor content and things like that. And look, I don't have sponsors on this show. And, uh, so the only way I make anything is by the Patreons. And, and if that by making money, um, I'm not because I take that and put it back into the ministry to help pay for all of the things that, you know, running the show costs because it's expensive to cost, you know, to, to manage the show from, uh, recording software to recording equipment, to hosting, to website management, to, time and, and apps that I buy to produce content, things like that. So, um, I just thought it was interesting little side note, but anywho's I'm kind of ramp ranting on here and I don't like to do that. I want to get into this show, but I also want to make one other quick notion too. We are going to do a giveaway, um, uh, for undying light. So please be on the lookout for that. Um, we, we have to, uh, I, I, w- I want to get some information and, and I, and I'm, so I'm going to create kind of a survey, if you would. And it's going to be a couple, handful of questions. And those who participate in said survey will be entered into an opportunity to win a giveaway. So on Reformed Lifestyles Instagram page, it's mine. Obviously, you can go and, uh, chime in, uh, what you see or what you want in regards to, uh, me to give away. So I will, Pick something, I don't know, whatever the most popular item is. Then we will do a little royal battle royale type thing and we'll pin a couple items to each other and see who wants, you know, which one will win. Um, it's not going to be extravagant. Some people are like, oh, send, you know, this thousand dollar commentary. Not going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, we'll, we'll give something away. And uh, but mainly it'll be driven uh, out of this survey. So that is it, guys on the introduction and all the ranting I've been doing here. Let's get into the content. We are going to plow through chapter, uh, the rest of chapter two and chapter three in the book of revelation. As we continue moving into, uh, this content. So we've gotten through a little bit of imagery last week as we looked at how, uh, John turns and faces the glorified Christ. And we explained how, uh, this cannot be taken at a literal preface because it would completely distort any other account of Christ that scripture gives us. So 
uh, it would be a completely bizarre take if you would uh, on, on actually framing a real Christ. So it's symbolical in its essence and, and it uses imagery here to describe just the magnificence of his revealed glory as John partakes it. So as we uh, get into here now, we, we after we did that, we spent a number of uh, minutes on that time and that topic. And then we moved into uh, the first 11 verses of chapter two. We talked about the first uh, two letters to the churches. Now we're going to look at the other five. There's seven total letters and we're going to look at the other five today. And as I mentioned last week and at the beginning of this show, Christ frames these messages kind of in a very similar context across each letter. First of all, he praises the church and what they are doing. Second, he points out areas that the church struggles at and essentially he's calling for repentance in those areas. And then he warns the churches of his judgment if they were to fail this. And then he promises blessings to the churches that will overcome their um, pending judgment or or pending persecution or things like that. Because we will see in today's message here uh, some persecution. We will actually encounter uh, some some issues that are going to happen. So I'm going to read the first letter uh, we're going to tackle today, and then we're going to kind of pick through it a little bit, and then we will move on. Again, I don't know if this is going to be under an hour. I hope it is because I <laughs> got to go get my driver's license updated after the show. So yeah, busy, busy, busy. So here we go. Verse 12, and to the angel at the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam and taught Balak and put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I come. I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Who He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So there's a lot happening in this first letter. There's a ton happening in this first letter. So we have um, just this interesting dy- dilemma going on in all of these churches. Each church is facing something, right? Now, if we look back to the church at uh, Smyrna, we are warned of persecution approaching that particular church. But here in this letter to uh, Pergamum, Pergamum, it's a these words, I tell you, uh, Jesus writes to the Christians who have already witnessed martyrdom for their faith. Jesus praises them. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. The word witness is 
uh, martus, a form of the word that gives us the martyr, a believer who gives his life in faithfulness to Christ. So already we can all, you know, go back to the book of Acts and we can see how the church is already persecuted in its early infancy. It doesn't take long for, for the Jews to continue their purge, if you would, against, uh, the Christians. And Stephen is killed in Acts chapter seven. I spoke on that in my Easter sermon. Um, and then we see continual persecution against the apostles and to the early church. And so, uh, we talked a little bit about dating this book. Uh, so go back to episode one to get more information on that. But we talked about how this book is really referenced as the churches are already being formed. And as they are established, they are countercultural. They stand against what the culture is saying. And we, we see this here evidently in this text. Um, but I have a few things against you. You have some, um, some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat the food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. In this culture, in this early first and second and third century, sexual immorality is rampant. Everybody is just, I mean, it's like going off the deep end. But then you say, but wait, Alex, isn't that the same thing happening today where sexual immorality is like the topic of everybody's like Friday night, Saturday night's agenda? Like, who did you hook up with? Or, you know, what club did you go to? Did you get, you know, take a lady home or take a guy home or whatever it is that you young whippersnappers are doing these days? It, it doesn't change. The times haven't changed. So as, as, as you think that today's like, the pinnacle of human sin. I'm going to give you a newsflash. It's been going on for a very long time. Do we all remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. So sexual immorality is just a fallen aspect to the human race. Man loves to go after what he can't have. And, that is evident in how society has always been managed. It's how many, how many people could you hook up with? How often can you have relations with others? Um, and, and nowadays it's, it's, you know, relations with the same sex. It's how can I change my gender? It's, you know, the gender fluid argument and debate, which is just ridiculous. And then you get into the topic of, subjective and objective morality and truth and, you know, all of this stuff. I mean, as we have moved mankind through the enlightened period, um, which we didn't really gain any sort of new way of thinking, but boy, philosophizing became this like epitome of thinking in this time period, sexual immorality, uh, skyrockets even more so. And now we have disregarded God's truth, which, we know that as a Christian, those who stand outside of the church will always object God's word. And, and I'm going to give this even a framework here. Those, quote unquote, inside the church who object to God's word stand opposed 
to the truth. Those inside the church who stand opposed to what God's word says or tries to change it by saying, well, 1946, uh, this word was added to the Bible. No, it wasn't. Because the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic translations tell us it wasn't. So don't let somebody who has watched a YouTube video tell you something other than what the Bible tells you. If the Bible explicitly says that homosexuality is a sin, it's a sin. If the Bible tells you that stealing is a sin, then it's a sin. So we get to this letter and we have this monumental amount of sin that's happening. So let's give a little bit of background to what's happening here. So Satan's throne likely refers to uh, Pergamum's reputation as a home of numerous pagan shrines. Additionally, worship of the emperor flourished here. Uh, this is detailed is important for us to understand since Christian's refusal to offer uh, Caesar as divine honors was the root cause of much persecution. So let's frame this a little bit here. Caesar requires his followers to worship him, bow down and honor uh, his, you know, quote unquote divine attributes that he was didn't have because he's just a man. Obviously, he's dead. So not divine. But Christians refused to do so because in their eyes, the only one that actually um, achieved this honor was Christ. And so this was some of the first levels of persecution that the Christians would face came at the hands of them not offering Caesar divine honors. Now, a persecution will continue in, in sort of this kind of mindset, if you would, through many you know, rises and fallings of the world power that Christians always stood opposed to what the government would, you know, push forward in, in reflection of worshiping its leader. So as we continue here, uh, John Huss says Christ's seat in which he reposes, uh, reposes, dwells and resides by grace is all the saints, just as, on the other hand, the seats of Satan in which Satan reposes, dwells and resides, are all the wicked. Antipas, I uh, mentioned here, is actually only mentioned in this verse. Antipas had apparently been martyred, remarkably, for all the emphasis on persecution in Revelation. Antipas is the only named martyr in the whole book. Interesting, right? I find that to be... Uh, kind of a nice little nugget of truth that as you read this complex book, this is the only person named in the whole book. Now we will encounter massive amounts of people martyred and we will, you know, we will hear those crying out, uh, here later in the book. But we get uh, only one single name here. So as we continue, 14, but I have a few things against you. Now, this alludes to a shameful act, and this points us back to Baal worship found back in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. Uh, henceforth, henceforth, the name of Balaam was synonymous. Boy, he's, my, my day with language is not off to a good start, I'll tell you that, ladies and gentlemen. The name of Balaam was synonymous with the most deprived forms of idolatrous worship. An example involving sexual immorality. Crazy, huh? 
mm, doesn't sound much different than today where our government is forcing uh, states and uh, athletic corporations to accept uh, males who claim to be female to participate and are now crushing every single woman's record out there. I find that to be a wee bit on the sexual immorality scale where women have been told that they are no longer good enough to be women. In fact, we need men now to be women so that way we can make better women. Yeah, this is this world. I, I don't know how to I, I can't explain it. It's so messed up. It's so ridiculous. All right. So uh, we talked about the uh, Nicolations. And if you did not uh, recall here, I'm going to give this a little back. It goes back to verse six here in chapter two. Uh, the Nicolations uh, comparison with Revelations two. Uh, 14 through 15, which we just read, as well as reports from the early church fathers suggest that they indulge in meat offering to pagan gods and, and engaged in sexual immorality. Similar problems plagued the church in Corinth. As the church fathers, Irenaeus and Clement, claimed this sack of people was named uh, for the Nicolaitans mentioned in Acts 6 5. Then uh, then encounters here, uh, one encounters a strict, a striking fall from grace. So these Nicolaitans that we have show up here in the 14th and 15th verse um, are those outside of the Christian circle. They are obviously uh, a, an issue that Paul encountered numerous times within um, his writings and these individuals offer the food sacrificed to idols and our, you know, sexual immorality is prevalent. And so we see that as John is writing this particular letter here, that in Pergamum, this is a heavily pagan society and it's driven by these pagan concepts with food sacrificed to idols and, uh, and, and, and here's the thing we, we, Paul writes a little bit about this in Romans that as Christians, we shouldn't actively partake in foods sacrificed to idols. Now, if we go to a grocery store and for instance, buy a steak and go home and cook it and eat it. But when that cow was butchered, Let's say, you know, John Smith's cutting apart the cow and he's offering these chunks of meat up to idols to be, you know, cooked later on. We don't know that. I mean, that's just a really random and probably extreme uh, scenario, but I can't help but suggest that it is a possibility. So, but in, here's what John's actually uh, pre- offering as, as, to prevent us from, and this is what Christ is demanding here, that we should not actively partake in these rituals and ceremonies. We shouldn't go to where they are sacrificing animals for into pagan gods and then partake in eating it. So it's a big difference from when you are walking the market and you buy food that was unknown to you offered up to uh, um, an idol or a pagan God, and then you take it home, cook and eat it. You don't know. 
But what we are being warned against here is this. So these verses here, 12 through 17, Jesus urges the congregation in Pergamum to repent of the pagan practices in which they were uh, slipping and to follow the example of the one who stood fast even to the point of death. So this is the urging of this text. There was some who stood against these pagan rituals and was killed for it. And just as we stand against many things that are pagan in this world, in fact, I just got word this morning that churches in Canada are currently being boarded up and fenced up. Uh, Pastor James Coates, uh, his church was fenced up the other day, and I'm shocked a little bit, but not much because uh, Canada is going to these ridiculously far extremes um, in regards to this COVID virus that they claim is just killing millions and millions and millions and billions of people. In fact, you know, it's, it's so bad that those who uh, are anti-maskers, they're all dead by now. Oh, wait, no, that's false information. I'm sorry. They're not dead. Anyways, I, the whole Corona thing is a, is a massive I think deceptive move by world governments to take control of populations. Do I believe there's something out there that is actively making people sick? Yes, but it has been completely um, politicized and has been given. And this is given power to the world governments to come against uh, Christians and, and persecute them. And we see that, especially right now in Canada where churches are being closed while strip clubs and abortion clinics are being left open you know, because priorities, right? So here we stand against a world that hates us. This world hates us and it will do everything it can. And so this passage is a strong urging, not only to these people, but to all people, because here's the truth, ladies and gentlemen, you will stand against death in this life. You will stand against, um, against the world and it will hate you. You may not experience firsthand persecution. You may not experience, you know, the the threats of death, but you will face the hatred of the world. And so as Christians who do happen to stand in the in the threat of death, we are given this warning to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna, and that is a Jewish tradition held that manna would be given to uh, the faithful at the Messiah's appearance during the final days. Christian interpreters naturally associate this reference with Holy Communion. And this white stone that's mentioned here in the ancient world, special pebbles were sometimes used as an administration tickets to banquets. And this quote-unquote new name is likely the saving name of Jesus, as Acts 4.12 says. Now, there's a lot happening in just this little framing of text that those who stand strong uh, will receive a reward. And that's wonderful because, again, we, we, can, we can speculate a little bit based upon what text tells us um, that in those final days we'll, we'll be able to participate with Christ in Holy Communion as John 6 ref, uh, references. Uh, the white stone, kind of a little bit of a shout uh, down the road here a little bit that we might be able to give us some sort of administration, you know, admission into this banquet, you know, the final supper, if you would. 
And then that saving name, you know, it just says a, a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So interestingly enough, right, the Christians are the only ones who know and can discern who Christ is. And so there's this possibility that this is what it's uh, referring to, you know, but it doesn't the text isn't explicitly clear. And therefore, all we can do is speculate on what it actually means. So sadly, compromising the gospel and committing sexual sins remains a problem today. Yet Jesus offers us repentance and forgiveness also. He even prepares us a seat at the messianic banquet that will never end. And so while sexual sin runs rampant, even in the church, I can't say that the church is uh, free of this problem because it's not. We are offered repentance and forgiveness because here's the, here's the down low people. Um, you can commit a sexual sin and still be saved. You can commit all sorts of sins and still be saved. It doesn't give you a free license to go and sin and commit sexual sins, but you can still have forgiveness. So it's being offered to, to the church. It's being offered to Christians and it's a warning in of itself here because we know that these individuals will experience uh, persecution and they will have to stand against the world that is constantly driving itself towards destruction in their lust and desires for um, to fulfill their needs. So this church, this community here, is just like the church and community today that we stand in opposition to what society tells us in regards to, you know, being all you can be with sexual sin. And it, you can be anything you want. You can have sexual relations with anybody you want and nothing will happen to you because, you know, in their eyes, God doesn't exist and truth is subjective. And so go do it. You live once. Enjoy. But reality is, is we know that God's truth does not lie. It holds truth. And, we do only live once, but then we face judgment. Therefore, the world will be judged based upon their rejection of God. And the church will be judged based upon its commitment to Christ. So let's move on. We can spend a whole episodes on these churches. I mean, there's so much depth in them, but I want to make sure that we continue wrapping up here. Now we get to the church at Thyatira. And uh, this is verses 18 through 29. This wraps up chapter two. So let's go into the church, uh, to the angel of the church at Thyatira, right? To the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Again, this is a throwback to the end of chapter one. Eyes like a flame of fire, not literally. And whose feet are like brownished, uh, brownished bronze, not literally. So all you Hebrew Israelites out there, guess what? You have been debunked because scripture tells you that you cannot take this literal interpretation of who the figure of Christ is based upon Revelation 1. Because guess what? Later on, it clarifies that these are just liking references. They're symbolic. John continues listening to Jesus and writing these words. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patience, endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
<laughs> Sounds familiar. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her will be thrown into a great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works, and I will... Uh, unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and the churches will know that I am the one who searches the mind and the heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you at Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan to you, I say, I do not lie on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. As when earth earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father and will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the church, uh, what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, again. Another another little letter that's packed full of uh, of information. This is a, a little bit longer and has a lot of content going on because Jesus to John is explaining what it is that Jezebel is guilty of. So all through the message to his churches, Jesus says that he knows the works, the good works of people. This emphasis reminds us that while Christians are not saved by our works, we are able to do works that are good and pleasing to the Lord. This is part of the great difference between the unbeliever and the believer. Unbelievers are unable to truly do good works since all condemned by the presence of unforgivable sin. Believers are born again by the Holy Spirit and equipped by God's word for every good work, as Second Timothy says. This being the case, Christians should not be devoted to good works. Let your light shine, Jesus says. Uh, I'm going to rephrase that. This being the case, Christians should be devoted to good works. Let your light shine, Jesus says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus reminds the church in Thyatira, I know your works. Likewise, Jesus knows and will remember our good deeds when he returns from heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. He will tell his obedient people, enter into the joy of your master. So right off the bat, we we have this framing of works and good works um, that Christ will remember. We are not saved by said works. We are saved to do good works. And so uh, for the Christian, it is the freedom, if you would, to partake in loving our neighbor and enjoying our time doing work for them and with them. Uh, despite the initially good impression of Thyatira, there is still a very, very serious problem. For all of its love, faith, service, steadfastness, we hear no condemnation for its holiness. This is a matter about which Jesus uh, cares very deeply about, and his rebukes and warnings over tolerated sin makes this the longest of the seven messages to the churches. I'm going to repeat that. For all of its love, faith, service, and steadfastness, we hear no condemnation for its holiness. There is, this is a matter which Jesus cares very deeply 
and his rebuke and warning over tolerated sin makes us the longest ladder. Unlike previous cities mentioned, Thyatira is not a great city. It's more of a marketplace situated in a main route between uh, Pergamum and Sardis. And as such, Thyatira is dominated by trade guilds and oversee and oversaw its various industry industries, uh, wool, linen, dyes, clothing manufacturers, sorts of leather workings, potters, bakers, etc. Right? There's a ton of things going on. It's basically just a giant marketplace type town. Each guild paid homage to pagan gods, especially Apollo and Artemis. And this homage includes the attendance of gods at sacrificial feasts, eating meals in their temples, and participating in sexual immorality. So we see, as Paul writes often in his letters, and we see that it is in the kind of the same context as the early church, uh, these pagan god rituals would often be twofolded. It would be sacrificial meats and uh, killings, and then uh, they would partake in, in night-long sexual immorality parties. You know, uh, sorry to use the word, but orgies and things of that nature were often relevant in this context. Their ability to really distort what the sexual nature of man is based upon what God's word is was was quite evident in how these ceremonies partook. And so we get this idea here and this is the context to which we can understand Jesus's complaint. I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. So unlike a, uh, unlike Pergamum, which was tolerating this whole group of false teachers, the Nicolaitans, Thyatira, there is this pervasive woman in the church who is claimed to possess prophetic gifts and whose teaching seduces Christ's servants into becoming slaves to sin. The designation of Jezebel should not be taken as her name, but rather describes her in terms of a famous Old Testament villainess. So we get this concept here. Jesus' use of the name Jezebel indicates that Thyatira's false prophetess was teaching. The second Jezebel encouraged Christians to participate in ceremonies and feasts of trade guilds, even to participate in sexual sin and eat foods sacrificed to idols. So we see that straight up Christ despises this woman. He despises this teacher. And, and it angers him righteously that Christians are falling into line with this. And so what we get here is Christ rebuking this woman and then judging, uh, his church because that's what's going to happen. Uh, Christians may not easily accept the description of Jesus that is found in the message of Thyatira. This is particularly the case in the description of Christ as the Lord who judges his church. And what most, and what would most evangelical Christians today think if they were told not only that Jesus hates sin, but that he commands church discipline and threatens to strike dead church members who do not repent? I mean, what would they think, right? That, that goes against the whole concept of evangelical Christianity today. Because here, here's on one hand, we, we want to present a Jesus that's acceptable 
to all people. We want to present a Jesus that is loving of people. But at the same time, we have to be true to the biblical context and preach a Jesus that will judge his church. And for members who who are not obedient, who make the claim that they're Christians, and I used air quotes, who make the claim to be Christians, they will be cast out. Matthew 7 is a prime example of this text. Many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we perform works in your names? And Jesus will cast them away. So we have to have this idea uh, of, of church discipline because Christ will judge his people. So this comes to the final little nugget on this really long uh, letter that the Lord who bestows glory. This portrait of Christ provides numerous motivations to live godly lives, including our awareness that Christ hates sin and judges his church. The final reason is that uh, Jesus is a reasonable and mild ruler who graciously gives glory to those who conquer in his name. The mildness of Christ is seen in his address to those who have not participated in Jezebel's sin. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some would call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only to hold fast what what you have until I come. When Jesus speaks here of the deep things of Satan, he is probably noting the false prophetess Jezebel's claim that her worldly accommodations involved an advanced Christianity that only a few could comprehend. You get into kind of some uh, Gnostic teaching, if you would, in this little bucket here. Uh, Instead, Jesus says uh, her teaching that Christians can safely enter into sin involves not deep Christianity, but bondage to Satan. Christians are not to try to enter into uh, esoteric knowledge or advanced states of spirituality beyond what is taught in the Bible. So there you go, right there, straight up, this New Age mysticism, this new age Gnosticism, all this, you know, hidden knowledge, you know, these uh, extra gospels that pop up and, and try to distort the teachings. It's all a bunch of malarkey. It should be cast away because essentially you are just attributing to learning more about Satan than you are uh, learning about Christ. Finally, Jesus promises to the new believer who, uh, to the believer who perseveres in godly faith, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus interprets the meaning of this uh, promise in Revelation twenty two sixteen that I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is promising to give himself the light who shines brightly, brightly to cast away all darkness, as the most precious gift to his faithful people. Together with himself, however, he is promising that we ourselves will enter into that shining brightness of the glory through union with Christ in faith. Even in this life, Christians are empowered by Christ to shine as lights in this dark world, as Christian or as children of God without blemish in the midst of crooked and twisted generations holding fast to the word of life. And so this is the promise that Christ gives us to those who persevere and do not fall into the ways of the world, that we are given this wonderful promise that he will give himself to us. That's exactly what salvation is. Again, this is a walkthrough at a fairly high level of the book of Revelation. We will dig deep into some of these contexts 
and as we did, I think in first the first couple of episodes, but uh, we're we're kind of looking at these letters more in a whole, if you would, ver- instead of a verse by verse walkthrough. I do want to make sure that I urge that you continue to read and study. You there's whole books and studies done on just the seven letters, so you know get uh, commentaries and get study Bibles and get. Uh, um, and get, you know, your feet rooted and grounded in this context. If you really are interested in learning more about uh, the book of Revelation, because there's, like I said, I, I've got numbers of commentaries that I'm using and re- referencing to. So, uh, make sure you, you grab one of those. All right. So we get to the third letter today, starting in chapter three and to the church at Sardis, to the angel in the church of Sardis, write the words of him who has seven spirits of God and seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up the strength and strengthen what remains and what is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will forever blot out his name out of the book and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. All right. So we get to the dead church of Sardis. Seeing how Jesus uses local history and terrain of the churches in Revelation as a material for his letter reminds us that these messages were intended for actual Christians in the time of the Apostle John. Some scholars treat Revelation as speaking only to distant future before Christ's return, but the seven messages in chapters 2 and 3 here remind us that his first audience was the one noted in the opening greeting, John to the seven churches in Asia. So remember, each of these churches would have gotten all of these letters. They weren't just uh, written individually and then distributed individually. And so they will—they are each seen, you know, each church's um, uh, sin, and 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 if you would. So we get down here now to the. Uh, chapter three, and we start to get into uh, this dead church of Sardis. Uh, Read a little bit of context for us here and pull up the right note. And let's get going here, ladies and gentlemen, about to die. Verse two, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Unless the Christians in Sardis heeded Jesus' exhortations and woke up, a little bit of spiritual life they still had left would expire. Not found your works complete. The congregation failed to follow through in faith and service it professed. So here's a great example of a church, especially in today's age, uh, that would be dead. Now, these works aren't really uh, pulled out or detailed for us here, what they are actually doing, per se, but 
this church is still dead. It claims to be alive. It has a reputation of being alive, but in fact, they're dead. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say this is just like every single mega church that is preaching a prosperity or word of faith or, you know, selfist, selfism type message. They're preaching to you as being the one to be glorified, but they uh, have removed Christ as the centerfold. Their works are dead because Christ is not at the center of their church. This is the same problem we see here in Sardis. And three, four here, walk with me in white. Jesus is referring to in Revelation, white garments often serve as a symbol of the Christian's righteousness, which is bestowed through Christ and baptism into his name. Paul similarly describes baptism as having put off the old man and put on Christ. And so these white robes are the symbolical representation uh, because, you know, we're not physically, at least in this current aspect, taking on these white robes. But we know that in the end of it all, we will be wearing these white robes. We will be clothed in white. And so uh, they are a representation to our righteousness. Um, the robes themselves are not symbolic, but the what they signify is. It's the righteousness bestowed upon a Christian. As Paul writes here, that through our baptism, we are putting off the old man, that killing the Adam, and we are putting on Christ, as Paul writes in Galatians 3, uh, 27 and Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Now we move a little bit further here in this letter. Uh, the book of life is the symbol for eternal life that appears often throughout Revelation. Uh, those written in this book enter into the holy city, uh, which comes down from the new heaven to the new earth. So this book of life is a, a you know, you, we, could, we could call it a symbolical means to which Christ knows us. Uh, it could be a physical book that our names are written in, and Christ uses this for Christians who have uh, endured until the end. And as we encounter the revelation of Christ at the end of times, those who have their names written in this book will enter into the uh, into the new heavens and new earth. So Jesus here in verses one through six exhorts the congregation in Sardis for its wakefulness and renewed uh, to wakefulness and renewed vigor. Christ is urging this. He is is commanding this. And all Christians need to remain uh, similarly watchful, for we too easily lapse into spiritual lethargy and even death even while having the reputation of being strong. This goes against, you know, this goes right to all of these big churches that, you know, have thousands of members and they're, they put on performances every Sunday and they are just bouncing. But while they have the appearance of being alive, they are dead. They are not sustained by the word in sacrament. They are sustained by entertainment and, and, and love and laughter and while those things are great, they don't save people. God's word saves people. So if these churches are not, then how can they be healthy and how can they remain healthy even until life everlasting? If these churches are not sustained by the word of God, how can they remain healthy? They can't. 
That's why biblical teaching, whether you preach in an aspect of law gospel or you um, take the scripture and and go verse by verse and and teach it, however you teach, as long as you teach the word of God and you um, bring it forward to the congregation and you deliver the gospel and you preach it in right context – you are doing the work that you were called to do as a preacher. And is this, and, and if you're a congregant and hearing this type of preaching, you are in the right area. But if you go to a church and you hear this continual, um, you know, self, selfism, word of faith, you can do this, name it and claim it, prosperity, whatever the, you know, new age garbage. If you hear that, it's time to get out. This is your warning. Get out of those churches. All right, we've got two more churches. Let's continue on because we are right at an hour mark. And so we're going to continue to move forward here. To the church in Philadelphia, to the angel in the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who open, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you a door, an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make uh, those of the house, uh, of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patience, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to, uh, on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast that you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So Philadelphia, an interesting place here. Uh, emphasizing Christ's trustful trustworthiness and its ability to deliver on all of the promises made in the book. Uh, Jesus gives himself here as another, um, in a sense, another name that you can tag on to him who holds the key of David, stresses that Jesus is in the messianic line, that he is the proper Messiah, the true king. The key symbolizes Jesus's authority to allow people in heaven, uh, into heaven or to exclude them. And he has entrusted his authority to his church on earth. This open door symbolizes the gospel invitation. Those who believe in Jesus enter into eternal life through him. But we get to this little interesting nugget in verse 9. The Jews uh, who claim they are but are not and they simply lie. These individuals will bow down before the people here in Philadelphia. The Lord promises to vindicate the Philadelphians' faithfulness by forcing their oppressors to bow down below their feet. This may imply that some will come to a saving faith, but as it may, all who are compelled at the last day to acknowledge that Christ, all will be compelled at the last day to acknowledge that Christians are the true people of God. It's kind of, it's kind of like a, it's a big sticking point, I think, for the Jewish people because they they have this 
this knowledge that they are the true people of God, and yet they've completely rejected and do not hold to some of the proper context to like maybe Genesis with Abraham and they rejected Christ, obviously. In fact, they had him crucified and therefore, oh, and then they go on and persecute Christians. And so therefore they uh, continue to lie and cheat and hate against Christians and claim to be Jews, but are not because Jewish people by tradition would never hold against uh, Christians the the power that these individuals here in Philadelphia had. They would be more, you know, observers of the Torah, if you would, to the Ten Commandments, and they wouldn't be seeking to persecute uh, the Christians, even though the chief priests and the Pharisees and scribes killed Christ because he made the claim to be the Son of God. And... Uh, that really is a was a sticking point for them. They, they claim that that was like their number one sin that people committed. So Jesus assures the struggling church here in Philadelphia that their faithfulness to him will be fully vindicated and rewarded outside the church. And sadly, sometimes even within it, there is a tendency to look down on those who have little power. But Jesus sees things differently. He looks for faithfulness rather than power, and he gives uh, unsurpassed strength even over death itself to those who trust in him. And so it's kind of a, you know, an a, a upside down view of how we as humans view people. We, you know, acknowledge those who are wealthy and have power to be influential, and yet what Christ is looking at is he sees the heart and mind, even of those who might be meek or uh, would potentially represent small faith. If you would, you know, those who don't have the power to contribute to the kingdom of God in the, in the manner that others may uh, the church often looks down upon these people, or, you know, and, and maybe not often, but the church has tendency to, because we as humans are uh, judgmental and we, we like to sometimes sit in our little righteous platforms and make this claim, well, I wouldn't do that or I'm, you know, I know I'm better than Bill down the road or whatever it may be. But we don't know in our heart and our minds that these individuals aren't just as faithful, if not more faithful to the word of God than we are. Again, it comes back to this we display with our outward works quote unquote, how righteous we are, but at the same time inside we are dead. And in that case, we are no better than the Pharisees as being whitewashed tombs, beautiful and glory glorified on the outside by all the things and wonderful things that we do. But inside we are dead and far from Christ. And so this is a warning here again, that kind of cascades through all of these letters to the churches. An interesting little nugget here in 312, this pillar of the temple is a symbol of a secure place in God's presence. Ancient Philadelphia suffered reoccurring earthquakes. As such, this unshakable pillar imagery would have been a special meaning, meaning to the original uh, readers. And this new Jerusalem symbolizes God's final restoration for all creation. So a lot happening in uh, to the church here in Philadelphia with those who hold fast to God's word. Now we get to the final letter 
and we're going to get to a couple pieces here with a little bit can uh, twisted scripture, if you would. People can often pull this one out of context, uh, and they do on a regular basis. And so we're going to try to kind of hammer that one out for us to the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For I say to you, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and shame and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and, and uh, salave to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Here we go. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father, my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. All right. So we get into this, uh, Last letter to the church in Laodicea, um, and we see that uh, Christ introduces here uh, as the beginning of God's creation, synonymous with the source of God's creation, emphasizes that all things were made through Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 15, neither hot nor cold, though the church at Laodicea may have looked good outwardly, it had grown self-satisfied and thus indifferent to growing in faith and spreading the word. Now, interestingly enough, geographically, and I, and I don't remember the rivers, but Laodicea was situated upon two rivers and the I think it was water that came down from a mountain and then like a river water that met it and met that water. And so it wasn't cold water coming from the mountain, nor was it, you know, hot water from I think a spring, maybe if I remember correctly down the way a little bit. But the water that ran through Laodicea was lukewarm. Now, again, I'm I, I heard this referenced one other time in my ministry, in my walk. And so I, I can't confidently say that this is true, but this is why Jesus uses this reference of lukewarmness here because these two rivers along this kind of along this city um, essentially just give lukewarm water. It's not hot. It's not cold. It's just there. It's like room temperature. And so we see this analogy used. Um, but it, really what it comes down to is that they've become lukewarm Christians. And you'll see a, this argument often used by a lot of people in the reform camps and, uh, you know, biblical preachers or biblical preaching Christians that, you know, lukewarmness Christianity is essentially a death sentence because it is. This is what we get in this letter. Jesus says he will spit them out. Given the church's stagnation, it needs to be shaken up. These Christians have grown uh, self-satisfied and comfortable in their own wretchedness. Uh, in verse 17, I am rich. The Laodiceans material abundance made it easy for him or her to imagine that they needed anything that was spiritual. 
Luther writes, he is wretched because he does not have mercy himself and is miserable because he cannot have mercy on others, but is only miserable. But the Lord is neither wretched nor miserable. Indeed, pitying the wretched and making the miserable one able to have mercy on others so that he is not only rich towards his own, but also abundant, causing them also to make others rich. And then obviously we see the um, analogy of naked here, which actually we can look back here at the last few letters and talk about the white garments that they would be given for those who are righteous. Being naked would make you not righteous. You would not be clothed in the garments of Christ. And then verse 18, true spiritual riches comes from active faith, one that is purified by the fires of trial and persecution. The scriptures repeatedly invite Christians to view the hardships as a means by which the Lord disciplines and brings them into greater maturity. You will not necessarily always face persecution as Christians. That is not the promise. The promise is, is that you may experience it to some degree. You may experience some level of persecution, you know, wherever it may be. But the scriptures repeatedly invite Christians to view their hardships as a means by which the Lord disciplines and brings them into greater maturity. And then we come to this lovely little nugget, the door, verse 20. In this particular case, the image of Jesus standing and knocking at the door may be related to the parable about the servants whose master is at a wedding feast in Luke 12, 35 through 40. They are expected to be ready and waiting for him when he appears with the promise that those servants whom he finds ready will be blessed. I will come and eat with them. Best understood is referring to both the church's weekly celebrations of the Eucharist and to the eternal messianic banquet in heaven. Luther writes on this, the righteous ways act in fear as the Lord saw them, but the ungodly walk smugly as if God had his eyelids closed and did not see them, even though he examines them too and knocks warning their conscience hastened as a bride to meet him and with loving reverence greet him for with the words of life immortal he is knocking at your portal open wide the gates before him saying as you there adore him grant lord that that i now receive you so i want to kind of preference this just a little bit you know as we review this verse quickly as time continues to escape us Jesus does not just go around and knock on people's hearts. He's not just waiting because that's not what this text says. He's not knocking at the door of your heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. There's no reference to heart here. Jesus is not knocking at the door of your heart. That is twisted scripture. What this is saying is if I were a preacher and I'm standing in front of 10,000 people and I preach the gospel, then that would mean that Jesus is using this instance to give faith and deliver faith. And he would essentially be could use this analogy of the door to those who are hearing his faith. And I and I also say this, too, that Jesus just doesn't stand at a door and knock waiting for your individual faith. He's going to knock your door down. So I don't like how often this verse is used in reference to individual faith because it doesn't really give us that clue. 
It doesn't really give us the indication that there is some sort of individualized faith being happening here. What it is saying is, as the church at Laodicea, for those who are lukewarm, there is this warning. But to those who hold fast to the promises and those who... Uh, who I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous to repent. Behold, he stands at the door and he's knocking. This is it. Jesus is saying there are those in Laodicea who are still hot Christians and they might even be cold Christians, but they, they are being called to repent. Even these lukewarm ones, they're given this chance to repent. Jesus is giving them this chance. This is what the verse signifies. This verse points us to the fact that Jesus is ready and standing there waiting for them to repent, giving them essentially one last chance. This verse does not go out to the multitudes of individuals commanding for them to uh, to, to open their hearts because it's not what the text says. Jesus rebukes the Laodicean church for growing self-satisfied and indifferent to the faith, becoming complacent and self-satisfied about uh, our Christian walk. And this can be destructive as an outright hostility and persecution. Despite the common failing, Christ still comes to us in his word and sacrament, granting repentance and forgiveness. He calls us to follow him into everlasting life. So this is it. Even though we become complacent, Christ still comes to us in the form of the word and the sacrament, the promise of the sacrament and the promise of the word. So you can be complacent, but if you show up to church, you will hear the gospel preached and there can still be given repentance and forgiveness for your complacency. So if you are not actively in a church and you're hearing this podcast, please get into a church. Find a church. If you have, if all the churches in your area are closed, move. I'll tell you this. Your job is not as important as your eternal life is. Your job that you make all this wonderful money and have this life that is so comfortable is not as important as eternal glory. And so if you can't get into a church that preaches biblical sound theology or your churches in your area are closed, Go out of your area. Find a new church. If you have to travel, if you have to move, whatever it takes, find a church that preaches Christ and him crucified. I can't stress that enough. Anyways, right an hour and 16, 18 minutes here as we close down the show, guys. Uh, this will wrap up the five letters we talked about today. So a lot of context that we still didn't even really get into. There's so much context to these letters. Each letter could have deserved its own show. However, based upon how this uh, structure is going forward and time, um, we wanted to just get through this particular section as the uh, materials that I'm using kind of lumps these into the same segment itself. So next week, we are going to hit uh, part two, which we will talk about um, looks like uh, one, two, three, four, five. We are going to get all the way through verses, uh, f- all the way through chapters four, five, and the first eight verses of six. And that means we will, two, three, four, 
One, two, three, four. Five. We will actually talk. I got like a little section up on my screen here. So I got to make sure I get all the right little bullet points. We're going to talk about the horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That will be the conclusion of next week's episode. So stay tuned. We are going to get into the meat of the book of Revelation and uh, maybe next, you know, maybe down the road or, or you know what? Uh, maybe in the next series, this would be a really good portion for next series. We'll actually look at the letters more in depthly in, in, de- in depth and, uh, we'll talk about them as we kind of walk through some things that are often even, uh, cause the next series we do after revelation here is going to be, uh, books of the Bible, stories of the Bible that are not often preached or talked about. And so we're going to look at like some things out of judges and first and second Kings, things like that. We're going to look at a lot of old Testament stuff. We're going to probably talk a little bit about some stuff in the new Testament as well. And we might even talk about these seven letters because while talked about, they are often not explained properly. And so again, we need to understand context to all of this. So ladies and gentlemen, that concludes today's episode. Again, thank you for tuning in this long. These episodes are quite uh, uh, long, if you would, because of the material we are covering and how fast we are trying to go through it. And so we are making the episodes more than 45 minutes and trying to get them under an hour and a half. So guys, I am out. I will talk to you all later. Love you all. God bless. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.